on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the robot that is successfully slashing grass in a vineyard. Basically testing the technology to see that it can follow a path um, at the moment and then once we've successfully slashed, we'll then consider what we can do with it. But there's plenty of other trailed and um, vehicle-mounted operations that we do that we look forward to trialling over the next three years. And the man involved in the whisky industry who's certainly not standing still. Currently on the production floor, two stills. Uh, a 1500 litre and a 3400 litre, um, both for local producers, which are upgrades to their current their distilleries. Yeah, the ever-expanding whisky distilling business in the state will meet the stillmaker and two former oil rig workers who've discovered the whisky-making bug, plus the robot in the vineyard. Those stories coming up later in the program. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where we also look at one North Tasmanian berry group which has purchased a local motel for its staff. And we'll hear from a pioneer of the backpacker accommodation industry in the state about the recovery from the tough COVID times. Plus a check on the weather and your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438 936, that number 0438 936. First up today, biosecurity. And for the second time in Australia's history, a devastating pest has been stopped from wreaking havoc on the nation's agriculture sector by some very hard-working recruits. Biosecurity detector dog Petal has sniffed out a live brown marmorated stink bug in a passenger's duffel bag at Brisbane International Airport, returning from Taipei. The pest feeds on more than 300 types of plants and trees and is known for hitchhiking in cargo and in travellers' luggage. Colleen Isa from the Department of Agriculture and National Detector Dog Lead says brown marmorated stink bug is a national priority plant pest as it can breed profusely to become a household nuisance and is a threat to the horticulture sector. It is vitally important that we stop brown marmorated stink bug from entering Australia. It's an exotic pest that, while it poses no risk to human health, would be absolutely devastating for our agriculture industry. So the fact that it can attack over 300 types of fruit, ornamental trees and vegetable crops would be not just economically damaging, but it would also be a very big nuisance for our households around Australia. And how much of an issue has this pest caused in other countries? Look, uh, brown marmorated stink bug is a significant pest. Um, At the moment for Australia, it's ranked nine on Australia's national priority plant pest list. Um, And it's currently within several countries overseas, um, including Eastern Asia, as well as entered into Europe and North America. So it is a significant pest that we don't want to enter here into Australia. So did this person realise that they had this pest on them or in their luggage? Unfortunately not. That's the painful thing about brown marmorated stink bug. It is a hitchhiker pest, so it will hide in the nooks and crannies of passengers' bags or in cargo, and we can't find it unless we have our fantastic detector dogs or officers looking for it on the front line. So how do you train a detector dog to find these kinds of pests? Yeah, so very similar to our other target items, we will introduce the dog and do what we call an imprinting process to the to the beetle. Um, and so while the dog is learning that when I smell this, I get a reward, we do multiple repetitions and really encourage that dog to understand that when I sniff this bug, I'm going to get a reward. So it takes a lot of repetition, 
but they actually pick it up fairly quickly because stink bugs release a very strong, distinct odour. And how many dogs are actually trained in Australia to detect brown marmorated stink bug? So out of our current um, operational detector dogs, there are 37 dogs trained to detect brown marmorated stink bug um, and with the look to make sure all of our detector dogs will be trained on it across the years. If someone has got a bug of some description that they're not sure of, what should they do? Can they, can you, is there an easy way to identify this bug? So BMSB looks very similar to our native stink bugs. It's brown in a shield-shaped type body and is ranging between 12 millimetres to 17 millimetres long. It does have some distinctive black and white banding along its bodies as well, but I would definitely recommend that if you jump onto our website, biosecurity.gov.au, we actually have photos of what the bug looks like. And if you do find what looks to be a brown marmorated stink bug, we recommend that you see it, secure it and report it to 1800 798 636. If somebody actually is aware that they've got one of these hitchhiking pests in their luggage, are there significant fines for people who don't declare them? Definitely. If you're actually bringing it in on purpose with an intent to bring it into the country and you don't declare it, there are significant fines that you'll face upon entering into Australia if you're detected with that. If somebody is concerned that they have picked up a hitchhiking pest, what are some common locations where they are found in people's luggage? Okay, so the best locations to look for would actually be any um, dark corners within your luggage or clothing items, um, especially if you've been hanging your clothes out on the line outside while you've been travelling. So make sure that your clothes are nice and secured. And if you do suspect that you have the potential to have stink bugs within your bag, let an officer know when you enter the country and we'll get it for you. That's Colleen Isa from the Department of Agriculture and National Detector Dog Lead speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Detector dog pedal being hailed for the work in finding a brown marmorated stink bug, a live bug in a passenger's duffel bag at Brisbane Airport. The bug would devastate the horticulture industry in Australia. Coming up, solving accommodation problems for fruit pickers. G'day, it's Rick from your breakfast show on ABC Radio Hobart. You've done a sterling job raising money for the ABC Giving Tree. Your generosity will make a huge difference for someone, a family, in need at this time of year. I'll be taking a break for a few weeks, but you'll be waking up with Mel Bush each weekday. From me and all of us here at ABC Radio Hobart, have a very Merry Christmas. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. As we know, a major problem over the past few years has been getting workers for uh, farms across the state. And then when you get them, where do you house them? Well, the Northern Tasmanian Berry business has purchased the former Antalli Lodge Motel at Hadspen to house its expanding international workforce. This season, Buried and Taz at Carrick is employing around 200 people from the Pacific Islands. 80 of those will be living at the lodge. Larissa Smith spoke to Managing Director Richard Winspear about the new investment. It's an exciting opportunity for us. It's only um, uh, 10 minutes from, from our buried farm just outside Carrick. So we're hoping to turn that into some seasonal worker accommodation. We've got our first load of workers there this season, um, about 18 total. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting uh, development for us. It's obviously a big problem for, for agriculture in, in, in Tasmania at the moment is, is 
you know, supplying and securing their labour for the seasonal workforce. So, you know, we're, we're very thankful to have the opportunity to, to utilise the Pacific Island labour scheme that allows us to um, to bring the, bring those workers in. You know, within that, it's its own growing pains and, and seasonal, and the, the accommodations is one of them. So, you know, we're hoping that de developing formally in Tally Lodge into some seasonal worker accommodation, that will solve one of our problems. So what other facilities can you provide by, by having uh, that former accommodation facility? You know, one of our things, we really want them to have a great home away from home, you know, is provide some great communal areas for them. So there's already a restaurant and bar and large commercial kitchen there. You know, there's a tennis court. Um, we've already set up some volleyball courts and, you know, there's some beautiful park areas just across the, the Hadspin Bridge and, and obviously the river, the South Esk River, you know, and, and uh, conveniently a local bus stop just out the, uh, the front as well so they can ferry them in, into town, into Launceston. And then you'll be providing transport between the farm and, and the lodge as well? Yeah, part of the deal is we, we'll supply, we usually buy minibuses or... Um, you know, larger buses to get them to and from work and they're more than welcome to use those outside of, of work hours as well to do their shopping and, and things. But, you know, it is nice to have that other additional option of public transport. You've got 80 yeah. employees there now, but there's a possibility of growing that much further. Yeah, I think over the coming years we'd like to. So we're sort of drawing up plans of what's possible at the moment and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll take it one year at a time. For our berry farm this year, we're currently, we've got 200 seasonal workers. So they're currently staying at three different locations. So we've only got 80 currently at Entally uh, Lodge. So we've slowly grown that. Um, we've also just recently become an approved employer by the government, um, which would allow us to bring in the Pacific Islanders directly, um, where previously we have been using contractors to do the bulk of it. We still want to work closely together with our contractors, but um, we'll also start employing people directly uh, and hence, you know, why we, we thought it prudent to make the investment in some accommodation. And, and what is the makeup between a local workforce that you currently have and the seasonal workers? Uh, is there a, a split there? Uh, off the top of my head, I wouldn't know. I mean, during our startup years, we, we sort of more heavily relied on, on recruiting locally. But unfortunately, with the growth of Tasmanian agriculture in general, it's the local workforce just hasn't been able to keep up, um, you know, and so... Although we we still employ nearly all of those those local workers and and continue to to try to find more, it, it just doesn't keep up. So yeah, I think we've gone from maybe sixty seasonal workers two to three years ago to to two hundred now currently. What countries do they come from? They're largely well, they're all from Tonga, Western Samoa, and Vanuatu this year. I think out of the eighty workers at the lodge, we've got around. 20 young Samoan men who are in the second season season with us. Um, and then we have um, 60 Vanuatu people, uh, of which I think we've got 20 females that have come over. And, yeah, the large portion of the Vanuatu workers that we've got this year will be their first season. So that's exciting to see how they'll go. You, you've been undergoing some significant expansion at the site at Carrick. Is that a, enough to, to pick what, what you're currently growing? We hope so, Larissa, we hope so. You know, it's been a slow start to the season, which I'm sure many agricultural producers would agree with, with the cold weather. It's nice to feel, finally feel like we've uh, 
we've hit summer today, but um, and for, for this week. But yeah, we're hoping we're going to have enough people this year. It's probably been the one of the latest seasons we've had since I've been here. But um, you know, we're still confident. I mean, by this stage, we've usually only done 10 to 15 percent of of our full season. So there's usually plenty of opportunity to catch it up in the in the back end of the the season, come sort of March, April, and May. Hopefully, with some warmer weather. So we'll just sit tight and see. Richard Winspear, Managing Director of Buried in Taz at Carrick, talking about purchasing the former Antalli Lodge at Hadspen to house the latest crew of Pacific workers this season. Well, staying on that theme of visiting workers to the state, a pioneer of the backpacking accommodation industry in southern Tasmania, says things are getting back to normal after the severe disruptions over the past few years from the pandemic. Jane Martin-Lewis runs an accommodation facility just outside Signet in the Huon Valley and says it was tough surviving the heights of the COVID outbreak. Oh, yes, quite a bit different. Yeah, COVID hit us hard the same way that um, it hit most people hard throughout the industry. And uh, we were oh nearly 18 months without anybody. So it was a really difficult time, yes. We, with the help of the government subsidy, we managed to get through. Um, so it was... It's very much pick-up time, getting back on track again. You would have seen many changes. Uh, how long have you been doing the uh, the uh, accommodation in the Huon Valley? <laughs> oh, I'm probably like the grandmother of, of this accommodation situation. I've been doing it 30 years. Gosh, and you would have seen some changes in that uh, in that particular time. Yes, yeah, lots of lots of changes. And when I first came into it apart from having no grey hair, um, I was like the same age as the backpackers, the older backpackers really, that were coming through. Um, And in those days, predominantly the only backpacker accommodation place in the area. Um, And we used to organise work with the local farmers for the backpackers to have work, and that worked out very well. Um, So we did that uh, and made sure they were transported to and from um, very much like what is happening now with um, with other organisations, organising workforces. Yeah. Now, you don't necessarily have backpackers uh, staying at the moment. What's the, the bulk of the, uh, the visitors to your facility? Uh, at the moment, um, I'm... Uh, working with um, a seasonal worker program. So all the people staying here at the moment are from Vanuatu. Um, so a beautiful group of, of people, uh, mainly ladies, some some guys too, um, staying here. Yeah. How many in total have you got at the moment, Jane? Uh, at the moment, I've got uh, 43 staying. Okay. So uh, one big happy family, it sounds like. They are, actually. They're really good. This group's really good, yeah. Are there many backpackers about uh, ringing you to uh, try and get some accommodation? Uh, They're starting to come through now. Um, In the last six months, I've had inquiries from backpackers various countries, uh, planning their holidays as they used to before, Um, you know, wanting to know what's available, coming in any time from well November onwards really it was um, October November onwards wanting to come in as usual for the uh, you know cherry season their 88 days wanting to complete uh, their 88 days visa requirements 
Okay. Now, the ones you've got from Vanuatu, how long will they stay there for? They'll be here now till um, May. They're on different visas, different requirements. Yeah, and there's plenty of work for them? Yes, yeah, they're all contracted to uh, a particular farm. And what do they think of the work and uh, the Huon Valley and and, uh, just being in Tasmania in general? Well, they they actually love it here now. Now they've got used to it. Um, The weather's been a bit of a um, worry for them, (laughs) given where they come from. They've been freezing, so it's been very much getting them um, lots of woolens and various other things to keep them warm. But uh, they they love the area. Um, We're very lucky because we live in the middle of the the Huon on a hill overlooking the uh, valley and the river and the mountains beyond. So there's beautiful scenery um, and they're just quite close to work. Um, they're very happy with their accommodation, very happy with the situation. Um, and now they've realised that um, they can actually earn quite a bit of money when they're picking once, you know, they've got their technique and everything right. So they, they all seem very happy. And Jane, with the future in mind, are you looking at any expansion plans? Uh, probably not, um, given my age now. I'm, I'm, you know, getting a bit older. <laughs> but um, it would be a fabulous, um, you know, fabulous situation for uh, somebody to come in and expand on this property. But who knows, you know, things could change. That's Jane Martin-Lewis, who runs an accommodation facility just outside Signet's in the Huon Valley, where she's been kept busy this year with more than 40 seasonal workers from Vanuatu. Coming up on the Country Hour, is that a robot in the vineyard? Get ready to be entertained in 2023. There's all new bureaucratic mayhem with season five of Utopia. This is exciting. Mm. An unlikely hero emerges in The Messenger. I don't know I'm supposed to help you or something. I need help. Plus, all new mother and son, Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe, and so much more. How about that? Looking forward to 2023 on ABC TV and ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up later in the program, we'll meet a whiskey still maker and uh, visit a whiskey distillery in the southern Midlands where two former oil rig workers are planning their, their next move in the distilling sphere. They're actually growing the uh, the product, the barley, and then converting it into the whiskey. But we'll have their story a little bit later. Talking whiskey now to a vineyard. A South Australian winery is trialling a robotic tractor to automate some of its low-value, labour-intensive tasks. Limestone Coast-based Treasury Wines is using the tractor at its Windsor State Winery. The robot is learning to safely traverse its vineyard surroundings while slashing grass. Windsor State Site Manager Tim Malone says the robot's capabilities will expand throughout the three-year trial. We partnered with uh, Persa and Wine Australia to trial it in our vineyard. Um, at the moment, we've got it set up slashing our rows, so cutting the grass between the vines. And does it have a, a name that it goes by, or it's just Bravo 2? Uh, we consider it a co-bot amongst ourselves, so a co-worker. It's helping us get all the things done um, that need to be done, and it's not sort of a person sitting behind the wheel. It's a robot doing that operation. Is there anything, uh, like I said, it's, it's currently slashing grass for you guys today. Is there anything else that it, it can do? Yeah, so we're just basically testing the technology to see that it can follow a path. 
um, at the moment. And then once we've successfully slashed, we'll then consider what we can do with it. But there's plenty of other trailed and um, vehicle-mounted operations that we do that we look forward to trialling over the next three years. Uh, so at the end of the three years, we'll basically run an analysis on return on our investment and make a decision on whether we continue with these um, machines going forward. What happens if the if the, does the unit get stuck? Does it is it able to get itself out of uh, out of an obstacle if something pops out in front of it? Yeah, so it's got a full obstacle detection system. Um, it will basically identify what's in front of it, and if it's something that it doesn't expect to see, it will send an alarm to an app um, that we use to operate it. Our operator can then have a look at the app through the camera that's on board and make a decision on whether it can continue or not. Uh, was there any sort of setup required to get it to to be uh, an automated unit? Yeah, a fair bit. So we had the whole place um, scanned with the drone, which identified every post on the property along with any other hazards, whether it be a frost fan or um, a pump shed, that sort of thing. So a base map was formed and then a path was drawn for the robot to follow so that it can successfully traverse our site. What was the, the main sort of driving force behind uh, trialling this, this robot? Probably back to our cobot point, to be honest. Um, uh, labour resource is starting to get pretty tight and we need to think about different ways to get the same amount of work done. So if we can have a person running a few of these units to achieve the same outcome, that's going to be really good for us. That was Windsor Estate site manager Tim Malone. Well, the robot was designed and built by Swarm Farm Robotics, an Australian team based in regional Queensland. Prior to setting up Swarm Farm, company chief executive Andrew Bate was a farmer. He says he is interested in the efficiencies automation brings to the agricultural sector, and he believes the true benefits of robotics is in making farming practices more efficient. You know, we're very much um, farmers ourselves, and you know, Swarm Farm really grew from a desire to farm better and more sustainably. And and I kind of had this vision that I wanted to, to take in robotics uh, into agriculture and. And, um, and that's how Swamp Farm kind of started. It was farming first, and, and, and now it's kind of flipped around. It's kind of uh, robots first, and I do some farming with spare time. But, um, yeah, it's um, yeah, been quite a, quite a journey. Just in terms of the, the robots itself, so sort of treasury wines and, on, on the, on, in, in Coonawarra uh, and Windsor State, they've got a, a Bravo 2. So um, do you make a series of different robots for different customers, or do you just kind of iterate on, on the one model? Yeah, look, there's actually only one model. It's called Swarmbot 5, but each robot gets a name. So um, the first robot was Alpha, and then we went Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot. We got through to Zulu, and then we got Alpha 2, Bravo 2, Charlie 2, and we've kind of grown from there. We've actually got through to Zulu 2 now, and so we couldn't really go back to Alpha 3. So nowadays everyone names their own robots. We're getting some really creative names coming through now in the naming. It's interesting you say that because the the team out out in the Kunawara they've uh, they've named their robot uh, they've kind of called it a cobot sort of a, a co-worker robot. Do you sort of see these your your robots as as kind of complementing sort of the workforce and, and what's going on in agriculture, or is it is it to try and and kind of get rid of doing a lot of those sort of manual tasks? It's interesting. When we started out, there was a lot of people talking about driverless tractors and, and it was kind of a, I could automate that kind of mentality out there. Whereas when we started Swarm Farm, we really wanted to bring better farming practices into agriculture. And so a large part of the work we've done and a lot of the technology we've done so far has been around, you know, cutting out the amount of pesticides used in agriculture with cameras and things like that that detect pests and only spray when they need to. And we've seen kind of reductions in herbicide usage down to only 5% of what was previously used. So that's quite significant. I, I, we did some numbers last year. I think we knocked out around 
uh, nearly nearly 600 tonnes of pesticide out of the environment last year with our robots. So it's the change in farming practices that's really interesting with 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 autonomy and, and robotics. Um, sure, there's a case that there's a shortage of labour and things just can't get done on time. But I think when we look back in you know five years time, we're going to say, wow, this is really fundamentally changed the way we're producing our crops. We're using better you know farming techniques and things that we kind of didn't do you know ten years ago and things we didn't consider practical 10 years ago. Um, and that's what's going to drive the adoption of robotics. But, you know, back to the here and now, it's it's things like, uh, certainly in the vineyard industry, um, simple tasks such as, as, you know, mowing grass and things like that. And I think what comes next will be, you know, intelligent detection of pests and, and diseases and treatment and things like that. And then eventually down the track, you know, things like, you know, picking, pruning, um, all that sort of stuff is going to come into robotics. But there's going to be a little bit slower pathway to get there. Some of these things are quite complicated to do with the current state of robotics. They're coming, but just not quite ready yet. What sort of time frame do you do you sort of see that sort of happening? In the broadacre grains and cotton industry, um, particularly Queensland and uh, northern New South Wales, we've got a lot of robots out there now. I think we're around 45. Um, and they're genuine handover keys commercially working for farmers now and, and you know, running you know, 24-7 in their paddocks. And we're pretty proud that we've done this from Australia. It's completely Australian technology. We've developed it all in-house from our software stack and all of our autonomy technology through the prototypes of our robot and manufacturing. So it's exciting that it's actually happening in Australia and Australia's got really at this stage some of the highest adoption of agriculture robotics in the world because of this. And we'll see more and more of this now flowing into other, other industries. And obviously the vineyard industry is one we're interested in and, and you know think that we're going to add a lot of value. So. We still have some work to do. Um, we're not fully confident in vineyards yet, but we're getting there. And a big part of the project we've been doing was about the early learning opportunities and building confidence um, within orchards, both for us and also for Treasury Wine Estates as well. And, you know, I think as the technology matures and we, we prove, you know, um, return on investment and, and opportunities and, and we uncover the opportunities we don't know about in terms of the best use for robotics in vineyards, I think it's going to be quite interesting. So, yeah, at the moment, it's the, certainly the broadacre grains and cotton industry that's, that's driving adoption. And there's a huge desire out there within orchards, horticulture and vineyards now, for this sort of technology as well. And this is kind of our first steps you know, into understanding what that potential can be. That's robot designer and owner of Swarm Farm, Andrew Bate, speaking there with Leon Giorgio about the three-year trial of a robot in a vineyard. Could you imagine going to the tasting counter and seeing a robot on the other side offering you a little tidbit. Would you talk to it? Coming up, the ever-expanding whiskey industry in the States, and we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Early Ward. Thanks, Tony. Police are urging people to practice water safety this summer after four people drifted 20 kilometres away from where they were paddleboarding on Victoria's Mornington Peninsula. The two men and two women aged 18 and 19 were reported missing after spending the day at Rosebud celebrating their VCE results that were found on Swan Island this morning. Tasmania's Premier Jeremy Rock Cliff says 16 beds at the Royal Hobart Hospital will be set aside for COVID-19 patients over the Christmas New Year period. Mr Rockcliffe says the dedicated COVID beds will help ease the pressure on the system. Former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd says he's deeply honoured to be named Australia's new ambassador to the United States. Mr Rudd is currently president of the Asia Society in New York and will take up his new role early in the new year. And a University of Tasmania researcher says a labelling system with a clear pricing structure 
would help to phase out illegal wood hooking in Tasmania's native forests. Sustainable Timber Tasmania has described the practice as rampant. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Good day, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. We have a cloudy day, but uh, are there any rainfall figures about? Well, in the, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, there was a little bit of rainfall about the southeast of the state and a little bit about the north as well, with the highest totals being 3mm at Ferntree, followed by 2mm at Mount Victoria, Kunanyi, Mount Wellington and Burnie. However, since 9am this morning, there's been no significant rainfall and we are expecting the settled conditions to continue for the rest of today and tomorrow, although we will see a few showers about the northwest, mainly about higher ground. And then as we head into the end of the week, for Thursday and Friday, scattered showers will de- develop across most parts of the state, and that's due to a trough crossing northern Tasmania. Thunderstorms are also possible during Friday afternoon and evening, most likely about the central north and the midlands. And then we get to the all-important Christmas weekend. So on Saturday, there will be light showers about the west, pushing over in a west-to-northwesterly airstream, but fine elsewhere apart from the chance of showers in the northeast. And then the west-to-northwesterly airstream does continue for Christmas Day, so still some light showers about the west, but mostly fine conditions elsewhere, and a warm day for most places with Hobart expecting a Christmas Day maximum of 24, Launceston 25, Devonport 21 and Strawn 20. Well, that sounds okay. And uh, as as we get towards Boxing Day, uh, what are the conditions that... um, Have you heard anything about the uh, Sydney to Hobart start? We have. So it does look like that we're going to see north to northeasterly winds develop on Boxing Day and the day after, which is conducive to a fast race, particularly down the east coast of Tasmania. So some of those big boats are likely to finish on Wednesday morning, but at this stage it's too early to say whether they'll threaten the race record. Okay. Do we have any warnings at this stage? There are no warnings for today, but there is a strong wind warning current for the far northwest coast tomorrow. And the coastal waters and swell, what's happening out there? For today, we have east to southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots about the south and east, tending east to northeasterly 15 to 25 knots about the northwest. The swells in the west and south are a southwesterly of 1 to 2 metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 1.5 metres. In the north, westerly below one metre, and in the east, a southwest to southeasterly one to two metres. And the wave rider buoy at Marar Island is currently reading 1.2 metres. Tomorrow, we'll have east to northeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, reaching 20 to 30 knots about the northwest, and those winds are tending more variable in the west. The swell in the west and south are southwesterly of one to one and a half metres, in the north or westerly below one metre, and in the east are southwest to southeasterly 0.5 to 1.5 metres. Now, Brooke, just before you go, has anyone been bold enough to ask you about the conditions on New Year's Eve? They have tried, but as far <laughs> we can't really get that far out. I can say that temperatures are expected to warm further early next week, though, with a hot day likely on Tuesday. 
So on Tuesday we could see some maximum temperatures above 30 degrees which may lead to elevated fire dangers. So something just to be aware of in that period between Christmas and New Year's. Talking about going from extremes to extremes. <laughs> I'm now thinking of last week and the ridiculously <laughs> cold weather. Okay, Brooke, thank you for that. Thank you. Cheers. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you. Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk to a stillmaker as the ever-expanding whisky industry is demanding more unique stills. G'day. It's Rick from your breakfast show on ABC Radio Hobart. You've done a sterling job raising money for the ABC Giving Tree. Your generosity will make a huge difference for someone, a family, in need at this time of year. I'll be taking a break for a few weeks, but you'll be waking up with Mel Bush each weekday. From me and all of us here at ABC Radio Hobart, have a very Merry Christmas. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And that text line number 0438922936, 0438922936. Whiskey making is certainly on the rise in Tasmania and also interstate. Today there are around 50 whiskey distilleries around the state. There's even courses to teach people how to make whiskey. And many are also making gin and vodka as well. For Huon Valley stillmaker Gerard Hickey, the orders keep building up and business is booming. Fiona Breen dropped in to have a look at some of the stills which are in production. Currently on the production floor, two stills, a 1,500 litre and a 3,400 litre, um, both for local producers, which are upgrades to their current their distilleries. What's this beautiful, uh, shiny bit of copper right in front of us? This is Lorenny's line arm uh, with a specialised onion for reflux. So it's part of a gin still? Part of a gin still. Uh, this design has been requested by their distiller. So there's something unique about it? Yes, it's, it's a very unique still, um, not been done before. Um, and we're finding that more and more in the industry now that uh, producers are coming to us with their own designs and their own needs, and it's generally based around volume. That's interesting, isn't it? So people are starting to get creative. Perhaps the industry's maturing. Definitely so. It's well established now. Anyone who doesn't know the, the whisky industry in Tasmania, you must be under a rock because what the product that's being put out there through many distilleries is world class um, and shown by awards uh, with some of the distillers. Now, in the next room there, there's another big still. Tell me what that is, the sort of size and what, what that will be. That's a 3,400 litre for McHenry down, at, uh, down the peninsula. And as, again, with most of the distillers now, they've been in the industry five, seven, seven years. So now they're upsizing. They've got their sales and marketing down. They've got their customer base. Uh, there's a lot of export going on. And these guys now need volume. So volume means bigger stills. And is that for whiskey or gin? Gin. So you get, you're doing whiskey and gin stills? Whiskey and gin stills. Lorenny's is the first that's a dedicated gin still, um, but generally the stills that we make are either or. You can, have, you can distill whiskey and gin. And that's what some people are doing? Yes, yes. They, they request what's called a carter head where you put your botanicals in um, and that gives you your flavours for your gin. Okay, Jared Hickey, you haven't always been in the whiskey gin business or the still business. How did you get into this? COVID. 
COVID. <laughs> a few people had some uh, about turns during COVID. I uh, mechanically fit out factories, uh, amongst other things. But COVID put an end to that due to the size of the projects and the markets that those factories supplied were generally export. Uh, so these spending $50 million on a new plant in COVID times wasn't, wasn't feasible with export. So. so that stopped pretty abruptly? It Very abruptly. There were 20 employees on the books. So an about turn, what made you think of steels? Um, I come from a manufacturing background as an apprentice uh, fitter and turner and I always liked the idea of rather than chasing work, someone comes to me and buys my product. And has that happened? It's happening now. (laughs) All right. So you bought the business off uh, an established steel maker and you're, you know, running with it. Yes. So Peter Bailey, um, really the the part of the brains behind the whiskey industry as such as he built Bill Lark's first still. They travelled to Scotland together, developed developed, um, shapes and uh, the size of the stills um, to which we, we now is a is on the floor and people come and, yeah, that's what they want. So people are coming to you asking for stills? Yes. There's a distillery course run at Old Kempton and there's I get a ten, uh, eight to ten people a month through the, the, uh, the workshop from the mainland, from Tassie, um, all round, uh, looking to start distilling. So you've had the business for how long? Just over 12 months. And how has demand gone? Demand is, demand is great. Uh, copper supply and, and uh, the, the other essentials that go along with the business, materials, freight, labour, all these, all these things are compacted with the economy of today. Add a lot of money to the still. Um, we can't do much about it. That's just, it's like diesel. So what would one set me back if I, if I wanted one, you know, a reasonable size? They start at about, in the baby range, um, around $9,000 up to $200,000. Well, so someone would spend that money on a steel, 200000 Yes, the government's come on board and changed the tax system, so with the um, ATO alcohol excise, um, which has helped out the distillers immensely, and I think the figure's around $350,000, so they were taxed heavily before they sold their product because it's got to go into the barrel to mature. Um, now it's given the opportunity to, um, yeah, even up with the wine industry and... So would you say, I know you've only been in the business for 12 months, do you see the whisky gin industry here growing in Tassie itself? Certainly. Uh, I have new three new distillers asking questions seriously now. Um, there's a lot of corners of the state that aren't um, overpopulated with distillers. Um, there's the West Coast, there's the North West. Um, there's the North Coast, there's still a lot of little, little guys out there who are wanting to get in, and everyone starts off little. They'll probably start off with a 600 litre, then they'll get a 1,200 litre, then they'll go, right, now I want a 3,000 litre or better. And you're also getting interest from interstate. Yes, funnily enough, I've got a lot of retired couples looking for something to do, so they kick back and go, let's make booze. <laughs> <laughs> let's make booze. And Jared Hickey making stills in the Huon Valley for the growing spirit-making industry in Tasmania and talking there to Fiona Breen and, as always, in moderation. It's on a raid in the southern Midlands that generally only farming folk use, but it could become a destination. Lower Marshes Distillery is starting to make waves with its paddock-to-bottle product. Two former remote oil rig workers are back home in Tassie growing barley and making the whisky. Their background in the trades has been a real bonus when it comes to designing the best malting equipment. Fiona Breen dropped in to chat to Steve Knight and Corey Hazelwood.
So we're actually located in the central highlands, uh, but we must be right on the border of the southern Midlands, which is pretty good cropping country. Here we've got a couple hundred sheep, horses, and uh, grow a few crops and cut some hay. It's not a full-time farm for you. You've had a, a, a job, you're both sort of working, but you're looking at, at uh, developing a few things here, and that includes a crop that's over there. Yeah, the crops um, for the whiskey, which is hopefully full-time now that um, I'm not working another job full-time. Okay, so you've got a crop of barley over there? Uh, we hopefully uh, harvested in January and um, malt it and um, put it through our whiskey production. Joining us as well is your partner in this, this operation here, this whiskey operation, which is a side hustle for a, a small farm that you've got here. Steve Knight, this is something you're quite passionate about in the early days? Yeah, it was. I started off sort of more interested in the process of how distilling works. And um, once I hooked up with Corey on the oil rigs, we, um, I don't know, just sort of bounced off each other and it evolved into what we've got now. It must have been quite a learning experience for both of you. Corey, you're probably already doing some cropping, but to do it for whiskey, that was the next step. I didn't really know anything about growing barley. Um, just started asking lots of questions of people um, to get specifically malting barley. And we've been pretty lucky with the crops we've had so far. We've sent them off and had them tested and the protein levels are just just making it for malting barley. Um, I'm not sure if it, how much it would affect it if they were lower, but so far we've been lucky and achieved malting quality barley every time. And you both have a background of working in the Navy and working on oil rigs, etc. So you have sort of a mechanical background. Tell me about what you developed to help uh, work with the, the malting of the barley, Steve Knight. We managed to um, stumble across a pretty large stainless steel cement mixer, which we've um, you know, fixed up a little bit and modified slightly to do what we want it to do. Um, we did start drying the malt in it as well, but that was sort of taking too long. So we got an old box trailer and a bunch of materials and made a, a drying rack as well, So, which uh, certainly cut down the, the time frame. So it goes from the paddock into the mixer? Yes, it does. Yeah. And what do you, what's the process there? Uh, we've got to soak it for eight hours and then we generally run, it, run that water off, um, leave that for 12 hours and then give it another soak and then it'll, it'll start, start growing. So it starts sprouting and that's part of the important part of malting? It is. Um, then you've got to get the, the endospur on the grain to about half to three quarters the length of the grain and then you want to stop it. Um, and that's when we, we take it out of the mixer and put it in our, our dryer. Corey Hazelwood, so how long does it need to be dried before you actually can use it in the process of whiskey making? We just use natural airflow and you've got to get the moisture content down below 15%. So it actually depends on how well, humid it is before um, we can crush it enough to use it in the whiskey process. Because it has been quite humid lately, hasn't it? Yeah, about, about a week's normally enough to do it. Um, sometimes it's been like four days and it's dry enough. Well, tell me about how your process is going. Making whiskey it must have been a huge learning experience for both of you. <laughs> there was a few mistakes along the way for sure yeah everything we've got here we've pretty much built ourselves starting from the shed itself as well um, we've got a bit of a help from or a big help actually from uh, Gozzi uh, Rello of Corey's who welded the steel together for us but that started off as flat sheets of copper yeah that was a, 
a gamble and it's, it's paid off and it's working well for us. You've even had, uh, as they say, the godfather of Tasmania whiskey, Bill Lark, out here to have a little look at your operation. Yeah, I think Bill quite likes coming out here and having a look at how we're doing things. Uh, back to basics, distilling out here. How is the whiskey? What do the customers think? Yeah, um, received heaps of great feedback about it. I think current environment, people like the craft whiskey soon. So Steve Knight, what's what's next to just keep sort of developing the actual whiskey? Are you planning to sort of join up to the Tasmanian Whiskey Trail or, or what are you thinking? Well, we would like to get, you know, our name out there as well and uh, offer it a bit more as far as um, cellar door. Yeah, certainly like to start offering it to people driving past and become part of that whiskey trail which runs all the way up through now to our uh, Callington Mill. Do many people actually drive past Lower Marshes on the Lower Marsha Road? No. <laughs> no, they don't. So maybe you need to sort of attract them out here. Yeah, well, we've had a few people come out already and quite a few people that have contacted us wanting to come out, but it's just trying to organise it so we're here. We're nearly the on the way to Callington Mill. <laughs> nearly. Yeah. So tell me, uh, Corey Hazelwood, was there a lot of testing, trial and error, on the way to getting to this point? Oh, absolutely. The batches of malt that went sour and got fed off to stock and dumped in paddocks, um, yeah, definitely a few. What about the actual whiskey itself? Oh, drinking the whiskey. No, yeah, my wife's uh, probably the number one whiskey taster and uh, flavour identifier. But, yeah, we, all, we definitely have a sample every now and then. That was Steve Knight and Corey Hazelwood, whiskey makers in the Southern Midlands, talking there to Fiona Breen at the Lower Marshes Distillery. To the bee industry now, New South Wales authorities have found another case of varroa mite, this time in a beehive just outside of Newcastle. It's the 107th case. It means those hives will have to be destroyed and the red eradication zone will increase around the town of Vasey near Maitland where the hive was found. Dr John Carr is a vet and author of a book on managing bee health. He travels the world for his work as a vet and he's across how other countries have managed varroa mite. David Clawton asked him how important it is for Australia to continue with the plan to eradicate. You expect maybe one in ten hives not to make it through the winter. Um, with the varroa, it could go to one in three. Um, you could lose 30%. And, and that is obviously unsustainable and is not in the animal's interest and not the animal's welfare interest. No, it's a lot, isn't it? And they've destroyed a lot of hives in New South Wales as well, or, um, so we, maybe 10% only, or more. Well, we're the only continent left um, which is varroa-free. Um, we then have this uh, infestation around the Newcastle-Sydney area, and it's mainly located on the Newcastle area. And certainly I agree we have... Um, Deliberately um, lost a lot. All the all the commercial hives within that within the red zones. Uh, if you look on the um, uh, on the DAF um, link, uh, and we have to in the sense that we've got to we've basically got to look after the rest of Australia's bees. I mean, at the moment the outbreak is still relatively confined in a very small area, um, and. But it is still disturbing, like you said. Yes, like you said that we've had one new case yesterday. Um, and the other thing that is disturbing is the potential escapees, because we have now eliminated all of the hives within the exclusion zones. Um, but they're the hives that we control, as in the the hives that we farm. But bees are a bit like cats; they will live with you if they want to, and they will swarm, and they will more than happy to live in a tree. 
Um, and so the, the next phase of the eradication program is going to be a lot more intense and a lot more difficult because we've got to find um, these bees that are living in trees. The other issue that's been plaguing the industry that we heard about recently was with the queen bees because New South Wales was a big source of mm-hmm. queens for the rest of the country. Is that impacting yeah. on, on Queenslanders and other states, do you think? It, it's not as yet, but it might do over the over the year. Um, at the moment, we're, we're coming into more of our wet season. Um, but once we start uh, ramping up the um, production of honey, um, then we're going to have more demand for, bee, for queens. In the short term, the queen amazingly will live for five years but uh, from uh, to try and have the 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 best queen with the most productive the most reproductive um, most most queens will be replaced every three years or so um, so it is a it is a concern um, but at the moment we're just watching the watching this space and for, from based on your experience of looking at what's happened elsewhere is this containment plan still achievable is eradication still achievable in australia and, and and desirable my answer to that might be um it is essential we can't afford to start having you know varroa treatment plans like the rest of the world has i mean they are very expensive um they can involve using chemicals depending on on on, uh, on your type of hive but at the end of the day at the moment i don't want to to even consider uh, losing this battle it is a battle we've got to win but from a Townsville point of view, we've been at the forefront before. We've had a varroa infestation ourselves, um, and we got rid of it. And uh, so we're obviously just praying that the, the guys in New South Wales will be as successful as we were. And from one battle against varroa to the war in Ukraine, you were there when the war broke out. Are you still in touch with people? What are you, what are you hearing from Ukraine now? Um, well, it, 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 dire it would be one answer. Um, I, I actually should be back in about a month. So, because what we're trying to do is just just be normal. Um, so, as a as a veterinarian, uh, I work um, from time to time in the Ukraine and provide them with some uh, training and things. And a lot of that training is still continued through Zoom and the internet. But it is still alarming. Um, the, the guys I work with on the farms have um, gone off to fight, and then the um, the wives and the um, girlfriends and things have come and worked on the farm. So we've had a bit of extra training um, because um, these people have not necessarily helped dealt with people before. But the farms are still there and um, we are still farming because we still have Ukraine to feed. Um, one of the small interests, um, this is quite horrible for me, is we may have only four hours a day of electricity. And so we've got to make grind the feed in the feeder. We've got to get the food around to the pigs. Um, and then you've got to tell the pigs, look, guys, you've only got four hours to eat, so if I were you, I'd eat. Makes farming then, pretty difficult, doesn't it? it? It makes farming difficult, and then all the lights turn out. You've got the cows to milk. It's difficult to milk them by hand. I mean, the whole, the whole concept is you're supposed to use a machine. That's Dr John Carr, a vet and member of the Townsville Beekeepers Club and author of a book on bee management, talking Varroa and Ukraine with David Clawton, and he is heading back to the Ukraine in a month. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Finally, today, the head of Australia's dried grape industry body says this year has been the worst for downy mildew since the early 70s. 
That's due to a third La Nina, bringing humidity and high rainfall across the growing areas based around the Murray-Darling Basin. Mark King is Chair of Dried Fruits Australia. He says he expects volumes next harvest to be down by more than half next year. I think it's going to be a, a bigger than what we think. Um, we met with the both processors a week or so ago and uh, talking around 50-60% of the industry will be down and will be down by 50 or 60%. There's some growers that have got virtually nil or very little and other growers right through to 100%. Have growers been able to get their hands on spray and even spray their properties when they need to this season? No, no, and that's been a bit of the problem. I mean, chemicals have been short, but I don't know whether it's ever got to the stage that they couldn't get them. They might have had to wait a, wait a week. But when the wet weather, when we had all that weather back in September, October and November, that's when we had problem out here at Pomona on the heavy soils. I did anyway. You just couldn't get on and he was cutting tracks up and down rows and we never thought it would keep raining like this. And honestly, I haven't never seen Downey in the, I think, 43, 44 years that I've been doing it. Not like this. I've never lost my crop or anything to Downey. I might have had a little bit here and there, but you spray it with copper and agrifos or whatever other chemicals you want to use and it kills it and it stops it. This year, we've been spraying it and whether it's the laps in between, but you're supposed to have 14 days protection or the weather just comes in at the wrong time from when you've sprayed. I mean, I've known other growers that have hardly got a issue and they've sprayed at different times. I think flowering had a lot to do with it, especially out here. It's been a late flowering, so it seems to be the varieties that flowered earlier were better off than the ones that were still flowering when the disease was in full bloom. And that last, that one day of hot weather really just rolled things. I mean, everybody knew it was coming, so people put on water to make sure the vines were going to be right and everything. And, yeah, I was just... I couldn't believe it within two or three days. It really got going. I've heard that this is the worst case of downy mildew since 1973. Is that what you're hearing as well? Exactly. 73, 74, uh, um, one of an older grower that lives out here at Pomona that actually... He was telling me, and (laughs) I can't remember back to 73, well, not anything to do with um, grapevines anyway... He said the same thing happened. It had a heap of rain in 73, 74. He said it was in January, and he was a big grower at the time, and he said they lost most of their crop. I think probably some growers probably wasn't up to date with their sprays or hadn't put enough on or was thinking like we'd done other years. If you get a little bit of it, you spray it with those chemicals and it kills it. But this year, you spray it with the chemicals and it killed it, and then in another week's time, it was back again, only with a vengeance. That's Chair of Dried Fruits Australia, Mark King, speaking to Kelly Hollingworth and uh, saying the next dried fruit harvest will be down by more than half next year. Not good news, especially for the Christmas cake market. Uh, Plenty of stories online, ABC Rural, and also don't forget to visit our ABC Rural Facebook page. Uh, The sales are on at Power Renner at the moment, and we'll talk to Richard Barney tomorrow to see how the livestock markets are going. Last sale of, uh, of the year. That is our country hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.